Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we'll be talking to Ed Miliband on his radical plan to tackle climate change, his life in politics and when he was at the helm, why he, like so many others at Westminster, has found it hard to put the environment right at the top of the agenda. First, though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield to discuss whether we've got a climate crisis uh, or not. Steve, what are you thinking? Hello, Tom. Uh, Yes, we do have a climate crisis right now. And I think the reason why this has risen up the political agenda, and if you look at any of those polls where it asks people, you know, what are the most pressing concerns now? uh, It really has soared to, you know, the fourth or fifth most pressing uh, issue in the country right now, not just here, but also in other parts of the world as well. There are a few reasons. First of all, last year, the uh, the UN IPCC report, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, the report which looks at, uh, gathers together evidence from around 6,000 uh, climate scientists around the world. They put out a new report saying, actually, things are worse than even we had believed and that we've got just 12 years, although that was last year, so now just 11 years, to prevent the world uh, warming to 1.5 degrees uh, above pre-industrial averages. We're currently at 1.1. They say if we reach 1.5 and indeed go above, uh, the results will be catastrophic. So you've had that. Uh, You've also had uh, the fact that you've had now uh, two major types of new protests. So you've had Extinction Rebellion which um, obviously here in the UK we've seen with their major protests over Easter. Uh, But you've also had the school strikes led by uh, Greta Thunberg. Again, we've seen that here um, and throughout Mm. Europe and the world as well. Um, And at the same time, I think it's fair to say in countries like America, you've seen the effects of climate change here and now. You think of the uh, the wildfires that took place in California. You've had more flooding. You've had uh, more serious hurricanes. These are all down to uh, serious changes in our climate. I think that has all helped to push this issue further up the agenda. And yet, you know, we've known that there's trouble afoot here for perhaps 30 years, depending on where you date it from, perhaps 40. Um, and... Um, like it isn't a crisis i'd say in day-to-day life or a crisis even in politics just yet is it because 
Although it might now be the fourth or the fifth issue, and certainly a lot of young people are using it to define themselves against Donald Trump or progressive people, you know, um, it, it's not a crisis as in it's not something that's reached a particular um, intensity because of a real um, passing emergency, like, I don't know, even something like the foot and mouth crisis or certainly a war. It's really still about a kind of diffuse and um, quite you know, big threat on the horizon rather than something that's in the here and now? Well, it depends who you are and and where you are. So, no, Tom, for you personally, um, it's not a crisis for you, Mm. but for... Uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world it really is a crisis right now their way of life has already changed dramatically Uh, in certain countries particularly island nations they know that when the sea levels rise their country will not exist anymore Uh, in uh, Manhattan for example uh, they're already talking about the reality that they're going to have to build a seawall and that some parts of New York you know, are actually going to are going to disappear underwater. So there's those issues. And Trump's some um, Florida holiday house having to be uh, put up exactly. A foot or two. So there's all this as well. And then just because you know y- you can argue, well, it's on the horizon. If we don't do something about it now then mm. it happens. It's as simple as that. So, yes, you can sort of sit here and say, well, I mean, it's going to be all right. This We're not going to feel the effects of this for 60 years. Well, in 60 years, we won't be able to stop it. And that's what the science is saying. It's like, if you want to stop this, yeah. you have to act right now. So... Yes, you can sort of look outside the window and go, well, yeah, climate change really doesn't matter for us here in the UK. Um, it will, and unless we do something about it. And... What about just the fact that it's always very hard to persuade people on climate, or it has historically been, because every time you suddenly get a load of snow or something, people go, oh, global warming, forget it. There's a temptation um, for people to do that. Um, And there are, and I think serious scientists who look at it would agree, there are now more typhoons and floods and, you know, incidents. But it's always hard to prove that any individual one of them is down to climate change, isn't it? Well, there's two different arguments there. The the first one about the snow. I mean, if if someone were to say, oh, look, it's snowing. What about global warming? That's just sheer ignorance because the issue isn't that um, the issue isn't that everything just gets warmer and there'll never be snow again. No climate scientist has has ever said that. Um, It's about it's about the weather becoming far more volatile. So actually, sometimes uh, unexpected cold snaps can be a signal that the the climate is changing in in a more volatile way um on um the other argument which i've now forgotten which you just made well just about how it's a statistical connection uh like within any individual one flood which means Ah, someone who's determined not to believe it or maybe has a vested interest in business carrying on as normal um can always say well you know this flood that we've had in ledbury or wherever it is would have happened anyway Yes, you can certainly say that. And it's uh, it's next to impossible to look at any individual uh, event and say, well, that is definitely caused by man-made climate change, as we've seen over the last 30 years. Um, and that's why you need to look at the whole sweep of what's happening and how all the and look at all these different data points of how the weather is changing. And that's how you're then able to establish, as climate scientists have, that the uh, that the climate is changing in, in quite a fundamental way, and and I think that the, the other thing I mentioned, which um, Ed Miliband may well mention when when you talk to him, which I think is quite interesting about how things have changed, 
is that uh, huge amounts of the damage that have been caused by CO2 have been caused in the last 30 years. Mm. Like the time where we've actually known this was happening. We've known that this was real. And that's perhaps one of the more worrying things is that simply... More than half of it, isn't it? Yeah, simply knowing that this happens uh, and that that we're causing this hasn't been enough to jolt us, to make us think, my God, we need to do something about it. And yet something seems to be going on now. As you say, we've got these kids walking out of school. We've got people gluing themselves to trains or the pavement or whatever it is. Um, And, um, you know, in a matter of months, a very small number of months, never mind 30 years of science that are telling you you need to worry about this, a small number of people who are prepared to get arrested have really pushed this up the agenda, haven't they? They have. And I think think it's partly down to... I mean, I say it's, it's, it's down to a number of these different factors, um, whether it's you know the science and, and the fact that you've had these popular protests. There is something that jolts you when uh, when children go out on strike for something, um, which I think has jolted people from older generations to think, what sort of planet are we, are we leaving for them? Um, and I think it also... I think there's also an element as well that the world more generally feels more volatile right now. You know that compare this to you know ten years or so ago, just before the the economic crash. There are there is there are more things about the way that we live that feel unsustainable right now. That feel um, as if something isn't quite right, and I think that feeds into that. And as you mentioned, you know, with Donald Trump, the fact that you have an American president who calls climate change a hoax, who has. Uh, you know, gutted the scientists from the Environmental Protection Agency who uh, has taken all mentions of climate change off any White House uh, or US government website. I think that, in a way, uh, leads to more protests in a way that, you know, back when Barack Obama was uh, president of the US and he was making a deal with China on uh, climate change that was a real step in the right direction... Yeah, is there? Do you really need to go out onto the streets to protest? Because you know you can sort of think, well, it looks like our le- our leaders understand this. And they they they've got it under control. The grown ups are sorting it out, so the children don't have to walk out of class. Yeah, um, and I think that has um, I, I think that's changed things. And I think you know one one of the other things that's worth mentioning as well is that you've got now you know in this country, strangely, you have um, a cross party consensus on climate change. You have um, a a Labour Party that's talking about a Green New Deal or Green Industrial Revolution, as they sometimes call it, uh, that has uh, that has backed this call for carbon net zero by 2050. You've got even a Tory leadership uh, candidate in um, or indeed overwhelming favourite for the Tory leadership. Boris Johnson has called for uh, net zero um, on carbon as well. This is the sort of thing that a couple of years ago would have been uh, very, very unlikely to have been uh, to have been raised um, by a Tory leader. But but now it seems like there is this cross party appeal. Okay, let's leave that there, uh, Steve. Thanks for setting the scene, and um, let's go over and talk to Ed Miliband. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you're listening to the Prospect Podcast and I'm here with Ed Miliband to discuss his cover story for our latest issue, How to Save the Planet. Ed, thanks for joining us and thanks for your fabulous piece as well. I'm very pleased to have made it onto the Prospect Podcast. You've arrived, Ed. I'm a, I, I, as you know, I care a lot about podcasting. And now you're going to care even more. Yeah. Uh, the piece is about how you grapple, I guess, uh, not just with climate, but the thorny politics of getting the public to yep. back that really drastic ac- action that you think is needed. Um, and the part of the problem, as you describe it, is that this huge climate thing is just so massive, it's hard for us to get our heads round, hard for us to believe anything we do will make a difference. So tell us, where would you start? Where should we start? I, I think we should start by thinking not how do we avoid disaster, although that's important, but how can we both avoid disaster and create a better life for people. In other words, I think we've got to see the sort of economic, long-term economic crisis we face of inequality, divided country, all of those things alongside the climate crisis and and tackle both together. And I think, I think you know, Martin Luther King didn't say, um, I have a nightmare. He said, I have a dream. And I think I've come to the view that <laughs> unless you show people not just that we need to do these things to avoid disaster but that there is a prospect of a of a a better life at the end of this which i think there is i firmly believe there is i'm not just saying this i don't think you can build the kind of 20 30 year or more coalition cross class that you need to win this battle because we're not winning at the moment but you're also telling us in this piece, that we need to get all our beloved cars off the road. We need to do something or other to pretty much all of our houses. We need to go easy, maybe, on flying. Why should I feel cheerful about any of that? Because we know there's lots wrong with our economy and society, and this could be, I think will be, a massive job creator for millions of people, just insulating and changing the way we heat 27 million homes, uh, 
changing the whole way our towns and cities are organized, favoring walking, cycling, public transport and electric vehicles, changing the way we use our land. And, you know, we, I think particularly us suburban people, we tend not to think about the way we use land in this country. You know, there's these are going to be massive changes. And if we if we only apply ourselves to how we can make these changes transformative for the better, I think we can offer people a, a better life. And this isn't a sort of, this isn't a kind of politician's cop-out. This is a, I think this is what I firmly believe. And and in a sense, I think too often climate change has been left on its own in this sort of environmental box. And it, and, and that, that then provokes the thought, well, yeah, we we'll do with climate change and then we'll deal with all the other issues. This is, this has got to be the foundation for all the other issues, I think. This is, you know, every... Every decision you make, we or a government makes, is going to have to be oriented to tackling the climate crisis. And you think that that then helps government? Because normally governments think in terms of constraints, don't they? And they think we haven't got enough money here and we've got a lockdown over here and trade this off against that. What this is is really one extra giant constraint that governments have to worry about. But you're saying somehow it's still going to make people's lives and livelihoods better. Well, look, we don't have a choice. I mean, if we don't do it, if we don't do anything, the costs and dangers and risks that we're going to load on future generations are massive. You know, people know about the Paris Agreement. That was the agreement 2015 signed up to by 190 plus countries to say we should limit global warming, not just to two degrees, which is two degrees centigrade, which is what historically had been the aim, but make efforts to to keep global warming to one and a half degrees. We're already at one degree as a world. The pledges that countries made at Paris add up to a three degree world. We haven't had a three degree warmer world since the Pilocene era. Um, which was three million years ago when sea levels were 10 to 20 metres right. higher. So, you know, I, I'm not mainly in the warnings of disaster department, but we are going to have disaster if we don't act. And therefore, we've got to deal with this. And what's more, the costs, and this is the important insight of the Stern report, which took place in the 2000s, Nick Stern, the costs of not acting are much greater than the costs of acting. In other words, you know, if we act it will actually have much lower costs. And if we don't act, then they have to cope with the consequences. So we're going to have to do it, but let's do it in a way that creates jobs, makes our air cleaner, which it will. You know, air pollution, massive killer in this country, uh, makes us healthier by what we eat. I think I think there's a po really positive vision here about the kind of society we can create. Mm. And you make these parallels with, I don't know, Roosevelt and the yeah. Great Depression and also Britain and the Second World War yeah, where the economy is, had to This is like a wartime... This has got to be a war. I mean, this is a war against climate change um, and you know, it's going to require massive mobilisation. I talk in the article about the different sort of fronts you know whether it's the the land or transport or homes um you know unless we take it that seriously we, we, we're not going to succeed and uh, and you know i'd emphasize this point about urgency you know the 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 um parliament declared a climate emergency more than a month ago now i'm glad to say that since i wrote the piece the government has said and it's put forward legislation to move to net zero emissions by 2050 as recommended by the independent climate change committee so that is parliament doing something but mm. as the independent committee that recommended this said you've got to will the means as well as the ends so the ends is the end is net zero how are we going to get there we've got to take petrol and diesel cars off the road earlier 
got to have this emergency program in relation to our homes. And, and you know, the, the, because this sounds like such a gloomy area for your listeners, there are some really positive things. Onshore wind is now the cheapest technology we have available, cheaper than fossil fuels. The lifetime mm. costs of electric cars by the mid-2020s will be less than the lifetime mm. costs of petrol and diesel vehicles. So it's... And, and we may as well get ahead of the curve. We may as well get ahead of the curve because it's good for... It, it'll be good for our economy, not uh, not bad. And you know, people might be wondering as they listen to this, well, what are the actual costs? The Climate Change Committee have said the costs are 1% to 2% of our national income. In today's prices, that's something like 20 to £40 billion. Pounds. I mean, that's a relatively small amount. Public spending is, is £800 billion. Pounds. That's 20 to £40 billion public and private costs. So we're not talking about costs that are so astronomical as to be, you know, going to bankrupt the country or anything. These these, these costs are absolutely manageable. Um, so they're manageable, but you're worried. I I think reading not even between the lines, just reading the lines of, of of your piece, that there's a big difference between setting a target, and you're grateful that in this country we now got a consensus for that target of net zero emissions and hitting that target with all those tough decisions. Let's just talk about the the, the mismatch sometimes in politics between. The ambition and then the delivery. Um, first of all, you look back at some things yep. the Labour government's record, your own record, where you're questioning whether it had the focus it should have done. Yeah, good thing that we did was we've passed the world's first Climate Change Act putting into law emissions reductions. That served us really well. That was for 80% reductions by 2050, set up the whole architecture of the Independent Climate Change Committee to advise government on five-year carbon budgets like financial budgets. Um, things we did less well, the Labour government, uh, something I was against inside, I argued against inside the cabinet, said it wanted Heathrow expansion. It then didn't happen because Labour lost the election. The Tories were against it. Now they're in favour of it. I think Heathrow, in a way, and you and I discussed this in the preparation for the piece, it's quite a sort of symbolically interesting sort of issue because it's where the mm. kind of short-term economic benefits question, benefits in inverted commas, kind of comes up against the sort of green transition mm. and you know you, you can sort of think to yourself well as if it's really this much of an emergency is the priority really to build a third runway uh Heathrow and there's a real jarring mismatch I think sort of symbolically yeah well symbolically and to an extent substantively I and mean, people argue about exactly but the way I think about flying is we're not going to stop everybody flying tomorrow but we can't carry on unconstrained in flying. And and actually, you know, part of, I think, also what we need to do is think, how do we design a tax system? Because, you know, the tax system has kind of ar- arisen in relation to the environment in a very bric-a-brac way. And we've got to design a tax system that actually, mm. you know, really hits the frequent flyers harder than the once-a-year flyers and all of that. So so think that we're on what the Labour didn't get right, the, the, the Heathrow thing. Um, I think... You thought the response to the recession, maybe? The response to the recession. So the Green New Deal, which is an idea that your listeners may have heard about because it's been championed in America by a uh, young congresswoman called Alexandra Casio-Cortez. Um, believe it or not, it started here. Mm. It started in Britain as an idea. It was a, it was a group of journalists, academics, uh, Caroline Lucas, who got together and said, we need the response to the recession um, and the financial crash to be an investment in you know, green as a stimulant to the economy. That's the whole Green New Deal idea, harking back to Roosevelt in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And we did a little bit of it on home insulation, but not nearly enough. 
you know, we had the sort of car scrappage scheme, which was okay, scrapping slightly more polluting cars in favor of less polluting ones, but it certainly wasn't the full, you know, pushing forward with the electric car transition, mm. for example. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the big stimulus to the economy was a cut in VAT. So, you know, there's lots of things to be proud of about how we stopped recession becoming depression, but but I don't think we did enough to kind of take advantage of the crisis, if you like, and turn it into into an opportunity. And so when you think now, looking ahead, as we all yeah. have to do, about the challenge, whether it's the Conservatives or things change and it's under sure. Labour, and when you think as well about your constituency where there's yeah. a lot of... Um, it's a, it is a mine. No, no, it's a, absolutely a former mining Mining fields. And people will be anxious about fossil fuel jobs going because of what happened last time, quite understandably. Um, I mean, do do people ever bring up climate change at all in Doncaster? And what do we do to get them to? I mean, people do. People do, and it will be an exaggeration to say people don't. But, you know, I think part of my case is don't try and tell people that their concerns about putting food on the table, making ends meet, all those things are somehow less important than climate change. I mean, obviously, climate change is a massive, massive threat. But instead, show that by tackling the climate emergency, there can be jobs for their sons and daughters or for them. You know, this this house-to-house transition, that which I think is going to be a big source of employment, hundreds of thousands of jobs, I mean, this is a massive undertaking. We did something like it in the 1960s and 70s when we transitioned from natural gas to town gas. But when I say something like it, that was just simply changing the way the network worked and going house by house and, and sort of, if you like, converting that way. But this is about insulation but it's also about you know moving from gas boilers to renewable heat pumps to p- potentially having hydrogen in the gas network so these are ma- this is a kind of massive change mm. that we're talking about and it is going to require a real sort of carbon army of people to do it and actually it's a real cause this you know and mm. and so i think make it an employment make it about employment make it about better lives air pollution is the biggest issue in parts of my constituency Again, by showing the way we can convert both our vehicles and the way we get around, you know, you speak to that that cause. And it does sort of wrench you away from that laissez-faire that's failed a lot of people in Doncaster. Yeah, definitely. And and you're right to say that as we think about the people who are going to be transitioning out of um, industries like you know gas and oil, what fossil fuel industries, which which you know over time aren't just aren't going to be consistent with net zero. We've got to make sure that we don't have happen to them what happened to um, mining communities, mm. and that is, I mean, by the way, that is a really big big task for active government. And you know, there's there's new technologies like carbon capture and storage, which have got potential um, for some of those industries. But but working out how you do that conversion in a socially just way has absolutely centralised. And and by the way, lots of this work is going to be covered by this commission I'm doing jointly with Laura Sands, former Conservative MP, Caroline Lucas, current Green MP, scientists, people from Extinction Rebellion, and so on. That I'm doing with the Institute for Public Policy Research. In the last. Um few months there's been a remarkable uptick in hope on this yeah. sort of yes. uh, which has kind of come out of nowhere we yes. both remember from when you were climate yes. change secretary the build-up to the yeah. copenhagen summit you know 10 years ago now a week to save the world or whatever nothing happened yeah. it all went wrong 
hard to get people interested. But now, a few people start gluing themselves to trains and pavements. A few kids walk out of school. And people are talking about this in a totally different way. I think it is remarkable. But I think, in a way, when these things bubble up in that way, it, it's because there's a latent feeling among people that this emergency is real. The IPCC, the international body that looks at these things, warned uh, last year that we've got 10 years to turn things around. And I think in their hearts, people know this is right. So when Extinction Rebellion went on the streets and did some disruption, some people disagreed with their tactics, but by, I think, three to one, the population supported their aim. Mm. And, you know, you had Tory ministers falling over themselves to meet Extinction Rebellion. Um, so... I think it's there and the public can be with us, but we've got to bring them with us. And, you know, we've seen in France when President Macron tried to put a fuel tax increase without really, you know, because of green issues, without really a commitment to fairness, you can see what can go wrong. So you know, fairness, justice has got to be at the heart of this of this massive transition that our country has to make. Ed, thank you very much indeed. That's been terrific. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to our interview with Ed Miliband. And you can read his article, How to Save the Planet, no less, in our July issue of Prospect, which is at newsstands now. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. We'll see you next week and goodbye. Goodbye.